More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. And I'm Grace Dietzler. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and link to our links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are very excited to be joined by Alyssa Thibodeau, a master's student in the Food Science Department working with Dr. Christopher Curtin. Welcome, Alyssa. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, I think we're going to have a very fun conversation today. And um, to kick it all off, we need, to, we need to start with the basics because you your, your kind of overall research is to try to develop a beverage that utilizes whey. But I think we need to sort of set the record straight because many people, including myself, um, might probably think that whey is just the dry protein that you get in a tub, and that is not the case. It makes delicious smoothies. <laughs> yeah. Why, right. You're exactly right. Um, so what you are referring to is whey protein isolate. Um, and so just taking a couple steps back from that process uh, gets you whey, which is basically a byproduct of cheese making. Um, it can become a little bit convoluted because there's two different types of whey, depending on what you're making. If you have a soft cheese or yogurt, you have acid whey, which has a low pH. Or if you're making like an aged hard cheese, then you get like that sweet whey. And it has a little bit of a higher pH. Um, but when you isolate that whey and you start to extract the protein from it, that's what we refer to as whey protein isolate. Um, there's other things that you can do with it, like make ethanol or to make distillates, which would then isolate uh, using the lactose. Um, but what I'm looking at using is just the total whey liquid. So what is the difference between the sweet and the acid whey? You said they come from different cheeses, but what kind of results in those different profiles? Yeah, so the acid whey, um, I would say, is very low in pH, about 4 pH, uh, whereas whey that is sweet is a little bit more higher on the pH scale, about 6. They have roughly the same biological oxygen demand, which just means that it takes um, the microorganisms quite a bit of oxygen in order to break down the organic matter that is there. Um, so acid whey is a little bit more of a environmental negative environmental impact because of the fact that it's really hard to just readily dispose of. And because it's low pH, it's really hard to just utilize where sweet whey tends to be easier to utilize because of the fact that it has that higher pH um, and it doesn't require as much treatment before disposing. And besides sort of the whey protein isolation, which maybe most people are familiar with um, for whey, what are what are some other uses um, 
or yeah, of the, of this byproduct way. We had someone mention a uh, comment on our Twitter that it can be used by farmers to feed livestock such as pigs. Right. Yeah, that is completely true. You can feed it to pigs. You can feed it to chickens. You can bake with it. Um, but I think people are having a hard time grasping like the quantity that is produced when when you're making cheese. So like on a small to even medium scale, um, it might be something that is usable as far as feeding animals. Um, you can even use it as fertilizer. You want to be careful with like spraying it on fields because it can be toxic to like sheep um, because mm. they're not they can't have a lot of copper. Um, it can be uh, in an anaerobic digester be converted to ethanol. That's usually for the larger scale producers that they use that they have systems in place. Um, but a lot of these methods that are currently used do require a lot of either energy or a lot of equipment and they're not really that sustainable. Um, and then again, there's just a really large quantity. So think about it this way. For every pound of cheese that you get, you get about uh, nine pounds of of whey or you convert that to the metric system and that's in kilograms so it's just it you get nine times more of the whey if you didn't <laughs> understand that when you're making cheese which is just it's insane and mm. it has a lot it's a very nutrient dense liquid so it has not only proteins and fat um, which we utilize the protein when we make the protein isolate but it has residual lactose as well as it has micronutrients like vitamins and minerals. So it's really good for consumption. Um, and, you know, it doesn't really taste that great depending on the cheese that you get it from. Mm. So it's like, what do we do with this nutrient dense, you know, overabundant byproduct? <laughs> I just wanted to to point out, you said it's like about a nine to one ratio. Yeah. Um, the average American consumes about 40 pounds of cheese a year. Exactly. And so that's 360 pounds of whey. Wow, that was good uh, math, Grace. Each person. <laughs> right. Thank you. I used my calculator. <laughs> I didn't uh, see it. I thought you did it in your head. Um, so when you eat oh my cheese at home, just think about all the whey that's out there right. because of your cheese. <laughs> right. And that's just like one country. We are not even the top consumer of cheese. So oh, I'm good curious point. who is. Do you I know? believe somewhere in Europe. I, that, that would yeah, make sense. Yeah, France, sure. probably. <laughs> or, the, or the Dutch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so you and your advisor in your lab, you have come up with an idea of what to do with this, um, you know, excess whey. Where did this idea of making a beverage using whey come from? Yeah, so it actually came from working in my kitchen in, like, 2016, trying to ferment whey. Um, it was... Uh, it was a really disgusting result, um, but essentially whey wine is a thing that exists in huh. other countries. Oh. Um, and then there's another beverage that is fairly similar to that. It's just very low alcohol mm -hmm. content um, in other countries. I want to say it's called gruel. Um, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I can't recall the exact name. But um, and my, the idea came from that is like it can be converted to ethanol. Um, and then through my studies, I started to really get into kombucha. I was making kombucha also at that same time. Um, and so I started to wonder more about like, what if we tried to make a different type of beverage other than just like a wine or like ethanol, because that was something that was already being done in our program mm. was um, making spirits from whey. I don't know if anyone's familiar with like TMK Creamery or Wayward Spirits, but they they're two different um, kind of distilleries that make their own whey vodka. Um, but again, oh. it's a very energy intensive process. Mm. And so I was thinking about, you know, we have these systems in place. How can it be simpler and how can it be better for you? Because alcohol at the end of the day, we all know that's not good for us. <laughs> um, and so I started to do research about 
whey beverages and there has been a little bit of research very very old talking about like whey vinegar Mm -hmm. um there has also been reports of like making whey kefir which i've made at home and it's actually really delicious and that's when i started to come on to the idea of like what about a whey kombucha Mm. and so the more that i looked into the research the more that i uh, was more so looking at Um, some recent work that's been done in the Samuel Alcane lab at Cornell University. And so they've been studying a specific microorganism, which I fangirl over. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Britannomyces anomalous, and it's a species of Britannomyces, which really gets a bad rap in the food industry, (laughs) beverage industry more so. Um, But they have reported that this uh, species of Britannomyces can actually utilize the lactose. Mm. Um, And so that's where I really was like, I feel like I I have something here um, that it could go a bajillion different ways of looking at this and so I approached my um, advisor when I was an undergrad at the time of of this potential project and he really loved the idea Mm. Um, he's also um, a yeast lover and a (laughs) microbiologist and loves kombucha and so we just continued to work on it and that's what brought us here today you sort of um, touched on it just now but for um, those of us who have maybe forgotten um, how this works, can you explain a little bit the process of fermentation? Sort oh, of yes. how, yeah, kombucha and I guess how this whey beverage would, would yes. work. Yes. Oh, I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, would I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, okay. When we think about fermentation, there are actually two different types of fermentation. There is alcoholic fermentation where you get ethanol and then there's lactic acid fermentation. And so in the system of kombucha and the system that I'm trying to create, we're kind of doing a little bit of both Mm. um, in the sense that, uh, so in either anaerobic or aerobic conditions in kombucha, there's kind of a little bit of both going on. It's not like one condition in total, um, but essentially we have this sugar that is in kombucha, um, the sucrose, that can be converted to ethanol by the yeast, which is mainly Britannomyces, based on studies that were done in 2021 (laughs) um, per my lab. And so after the Britannomyces converts that sucrose to ethanol, there's acetic acid bacteria, which is, again, mainly Comegateobacter species due to that that, uh, citation. And that ethanol can then be oxidized in the presence of oxygen to acetic acid. And there's also little bits of um, gluconobacter, which are a genera of the uh, classification of acetic acid bacteria. And so they can make gluconic acid. There's lactic acid bacteria in very, very small proportions. They make lactic acid. So essentially in total, just to break it down a little bit better, is the sugar is converted to ethanol, and then that ethanol is then oxidized to organic acids. And so that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to make an organic acid-based beverage, very, very low alcohol by volume content. Um, and the reason is because it's mainly all converted to organic acids, but there is still a residual that's left over. Is, is this the case in kombucha as well? Yeah, that's exactly right. So commercial kombucha producers, they have to create a product that is less than 0.5% mm-hmm. alcohol by volume. And that is because if they don't, the TTB will come after them for taxes, alcohol taxes. Uh. Um, and so that's how they classify themselves as either low alcohol or no alcohol. Mm. So they have to fall under that classification. 
I see. And so you're not only trying to sort of emulate um, the the system uh, to to producing your um, beverage use, utilizing whey. You're also trying to use the the SCOBY system that is used for. Um, is it just for homemade kombucha, or is it also like large scale? It's all kombucha. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when people think of SCOBY, they think of that like jelly gelatinous mass yeah i did which yeah, yeah which they're which they're kind of not wrong but the scoby in more of like a scientific way of thinking about it it just stands for symbiotic community of bacteria and yeast that's really all that it is didn't even know it was an acronym for something that right. was just a funny word, it's, a fun word. <laughs> right. it's just fun it's just fun people are like oh do you want a scoby so really what they're sharing is they're sharing a pellicle mass that is like the true term for it mm. and the scoby which is a combination of yeast and bacteria in kombucha is mainly like i said britannomyces yeast and comegetaebacter bacteria and so the reason why that like pellicle mass even exists this is something that i learned in the past few years that i just found absolutely fascinating uh, is because the acetic acid bacteria that are in kombucha they require oxygen so they're obligate aerobes and so in order to get to oxygen they create a glucose polymer which is that pellicle mass that everyone sees as like that jelly matter and as like a floating device to get to the oxygen. They build themselves a little little life raft. A little elevator. They did and they survived. They survived. So it's it's a really interesting concept and so when you when you take that uh, SCOBY and put it into another batch usually also add some starter liquid that is already fermented mm, kombucha mm. and so that's kind of where majority of the microbes are at but it's believed within this like polymer of glucose there's a little bit of microbes whether it be yeast or bacteria that get kind of stuck in there as that matrix is built and no one has attempted what you are attempting before right they have not tried to actually make a beverage but they've kind of done a little bit of the groundwork for me mm. just in regards to like how well does this yeast use acid whey and sweet whey or lactose and whey just as a general or just lactose as is? Um, but the thing that they're kind of missing is looking at the variability within this yeast and mm. then trying to create the system as a SCOBY. They're just looking at it as a yeast isolate. So I don't think anyone's tried to make a whey kombucha from what I've found. <laughs> um, so that's that's kind of the route that I'm going. It's not only trying to make this beverage, but I'm really curious, like, how does this vary per strain for the yeast itself? Mm. And then not only that, but I've struggled to find because this is a very non-well annotated yeast. I've struggled to find, like, what is the true definition enzyme that allows it to utilize lactose mm. and so I find that very interesting because as a scientist you can't just say well this thing works without knowing how mm -hmm. and so that's kind of the rabbit hole that I've been recently going down <laughs> and I've been taking courses on genomics and bioinformatics just to try to like learn further on like how can I try to figure out how the yeast is doing this and so if I probably won't be able to finish it in my master's but <laughs> I'm putting this out there that we need to know how it's utilized. <laughs> can you explain what well annotated means? Is that a genetics term? Yeah um, I'd say it's it's kind of like a general the way that I'm using it in this context is so we have like uh, we've sequenced this yeast so we know what the entire genome looks like just like how we do Saccharomyces mm -hmm. but Unlike how we've annotated what each gene does for Saccharomyces, we have not done that for mm. Botanomyces anomalous. We've done that a lot better for Botanomyces bruxellensis, which is the most common um, 
most common yeast that's in that genera that you will hear about in the food science industry. But for anomalous, we ha- we haven't really determined all that the genes do. Mm. So you have it sequenced. It's just putting the you've put the puzzle pieces together, but you still need to see the picture. Exactly. Yeah, turn the exactly. lights on, I guess, to Ooh, use it. What a good analogy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing that you mentioned that I thought was interesting is that other people are kind of studying this yeast individually, but you mentioned that these yeast are, they come along with these bacteria and other things that are in this SCOBY. So I would imagine that one of the challenges is also like studying the relationship between the yeast and the bacteria is that something you're looking at as well? Yeah, yeah, it totally is. So ideally, if this system works and we are able to build a SCOBY and have starter liquid and continue to propagate batches, the idea would be able to do metagenomics, um, which just allows you to look at like what microbes are there and in what proportions they're there to try to figure out like if this system is working similar to kombucha, who are the culprits? Mm. And so right now you're you're sort of looking at a number of different things. So you've been working in sort of a wet, um, you know, a lab based setting, working on a number of different wet lab projects to kind of figure out lots of different steps needed to sort of build the system. Can you talk to us a little bit about those steps? Yeah, yeah, of course. So a couple of things that I have done in the lab um, just to kind of like set myself up for starting the like bigger part of the experiment Um, is so I've done a couple of experiments doing like screening for sugar utilization Mm. so I've created uh, like specific media that has carbon sources such as uh, glucose galactose and lactose and then screening different isolates of Britannomyces anomalous that we have in our culture collection as well as just comparing it to like some uh, controls that we have which uh, one of the most common um, yeast that we know utilizes lactose uh, is Cluveromyces, mm-hmm. and Marxianus is the species that I'm using. And then the very well known and loved Saccharomyces cerevisiae. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it does not utilize lactose, <laughs> and so that has been my negative control. Mm. Um, and so that's been one of the experiments that I've been doing is like trying to see the variability of the lactose utilization, and then like the data that I get from that. I'm comparing it to how well they use glucose. So I'm getting a proportion of how well they utilize lactose in respect to glucose to kind of get a percentage of like how efficient this Mm. system is. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a couple of other things that I have been outlining is like trying to figure out the best way to sterilize the way so that I'm starting with like a a fresh slate when I inoculate with the SCOBY. Um, And then I recently um, have been also I've been having some struggle with like my controls because there's been a lot of carryover growth, um, which just means my controls have been growing on the media where they shouldn't be. Mm. Um, And I think it may be the way that I'm currently making my media that has the lactose. I'm putting it in an autoclave. And so I think there's a little bit of like breakdown of the sugar that's allowing them to grow. Mm. Or it could be it's just a common thing that yeast have carryover growth. They have just residual of what they need in their cells. And then when cells die, they are kind of like, they just eat what is present there from the dead <laughs> Cannibalized. cells. Cannibalism, yep, yeast cannibalism is a thing. <laughs> I feel like I hear this all the time from lab-based scientists, that the controls are the most difficult thing to like control. Yeah, <laughs> right, especially with microbes. They just, they don't, they don't do what you They're want. They're not no. controllable. <laughs> no, and the, the other thing that I've really struggled with is like, 
in an average day setting, you have no issues of growing bacteria. Like of bacteria course. is everywhere. I've had such a struggle finding media to grow my bacteria. Finally found it. Finally found it. So I've been using that. It's M17. If anyone wants to know, medium 17. It has calcium carbonate in it. That's what they needed. Yeah, I feel like with bacteria, they'll they'll grow wherever out in the wild. But then in the lab, you're like, okay, here you go. I created this perfect media with the perfect ratios of every nutrient you need. Right, exactly. It's perfect. I'm going to put you in the right temperature, just the right amount of oxygen or lack thereof. And they're like, mm, no. Right. You didn't tuck me <laughs> in right. <laughs> yeah. So I had a question about the, the way you're, so you're sterilizing it. Do uh, bacteria or microbes left over from the cheese making process end up in the way? They do. Yeah. And so there's a little, there's been a little bit of question for myself as to like, do we, like, I know we don't necessarily want them because then they could potentially dominate the system. That's the mm-hmm. reason why we're sterilizing them is ensuring that we, whatever we inoculate with is the dominating culture. That's why you sterilize anything. Like when you make cheese um, or like when you brew, uh, when you, when you make wine, um, you don't really have to do that because they're just, they're going to dominate. Um, <laughs> but in mainly every other system, you have to do that in order for them to be the dominating culture. Um, and so... From different types of cheeses, like particularly fresh cheeses like chev and cream cheese, Mm. those cultures are like lactic acid bacteria, um, which are good for you. They're they're considered probiotics, but they're they might not help the system. They would just create lactic acid Mm. if they're a homofermentative, which just means they just make lactic acid uh, type of lactic acid bacteria. Um, So there's been a little bit of question of like, should I consider maybe, you know, figuring out what kind of cheese uh, this way is coming from mm. and then seeing kind of what cultures they used. Um, but as of now, there's just been a sterilization protocol and their system might eventually include a lactic acid bacteria because there are some that can make lactic acid and ethanol. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's still kind of like figuring itself out, which is why I said there's a ton of different ways that this could mm. go, which is very exciting and promising. <laughs> is there, are, are you looking at, um, using both types of whey acid and sweet or are you only focusing on one for now i'm wanting to use both Mm. yeah so i feel like there's value in trying to see if the system works better in Mm -hmm. one over the other and then as mentioned the acid whey is really what is mostly causing us issues Mm. that we can't really find a lot to do with because of that low ph um but i would like to use both ideally and i've i've recently been working um with acid whey Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I'm a cheesemaker, and so I know a lot of people <laughs> to get away from. But yeah, the goal is to try to use both to see is like, is there a difference of how well they can work in in those systems? I don't want to jinx it, but have you already thought about a potential name for a product? I mean, kombucha. We have, oh, we have one that you don't want to reveal, or can you give us a little teaser? Um, I can tell you exactly what it is. It doesn't. It doesn't really matter to me. So. <laughs> I think my department head was actually the one who thought of the name and and she calls it Calbucho, which I absolutely love, (laughs) which which I'm a goat person. And that kind of makes me sad because like, where are the goats in this? But that's okay. (laughs) Could you theoretically do this from way from any kind of animal like goats? cows? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Because it's all the same. Have different flavor profiles. For sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. So. 
um, to go on a side rant with this. So uh, goat milk tends to have more shorter chain fatty acids, uh, where cow milk has more longer chain fatty acids. That's mm. why there's like more of a cream cap or fat whenever you think of cow milk. Mm. And that's when I don't know if you've ever had goat milk before. People kind of describe it as goaty if it go <laughs> if it's a little bit old. Um, and that's because of those short chain fatty acids like mm. the capric acid. Mm. So there's definitely different flavor profiles that would come through with that. And then sheet milk is its own its own thing <laughs> its as own. well. It's just very high in fat. Um, and yeah, so there's probably a lot that could come from it. I've worked with I've worked with sheep whey before to make like sheep whey kefir, mm. and it was probably one of the best drinks that I'd ever had. Wow. Um, yeah. It was really delicious. I mean, maybe you could do a series. It's like cow bucha, goat bucha, sheep bucha. <laughs> right. I mean, honestly, at that at that point, I'm like, I feel like this could turn into like a six year endeavor where I'm doing a master's and then a PhD in this. Oh, yeah. And we'll see how, how far I go into it. But this could go so many ways. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of the work you're describing uh, extends beyond a master's. <laughs> Um, so people might be surprised to hear that um, you did not grow up on a farm. You did not grow up surrounded by milk producing animals. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> you you grew up uh, in a desert in a big city. I did. Yeah, those were my words. <laughs> you know, it's funny. My mom still to this day will tease me because the first time that I went to a dairy farm was when I was in elementary school. It was like for a field trip and mm-hmm. I wore so much jewelry <laughs> that like that was not that was not the place to be wearing it to. And I, so I wasn't really exposed to livestock. There was definitely mm-hmm. like cows that were in Arizona that were big, large, like CAFOs essentially, but I never really had hands-on experience with them. Um, and it was, I think in 20, the end of 2017 that, um, uh, my former partner and I had decided like, we want to move more towards what we are, you know, shooting as for goals. Uh, we wanted to have a farm. I still want to have a farm one day. That is my goal. Um, and so we decided to, through the WOOF program, which stands for Willing Workers on Organic Farms, and I highly recommend you check out, uh, we moved here to Oregon to farm. And I, that was the first time that I started working with goats. Um, and shortly after that, we uh, settled and I got a job as a cheesemaker and was still working with goats. And I had absolutely fell in love. I felt like this is this was like my calling. This was like meant for me. Like mm-hmm. I loved milking the goats and then making cheese with the milk. Um, and so that was like my first experience. And when I was like, yeah, I want to die on a farm, even though I wasn't born on a farm, <laughs> I can set the tone for like future generations in my family to be like, we're a farming family. <laughs> so <laughs> we do not wear jewelry, <laughs> you know, which is funny because I've taken my daughter. I have a five-year-old daughter who her name is Robbie. And if you're listening to this, I love you so much. Uh, but I remember taking her one day to go milk one one of many times I went to go take her to milk goats and she dressed herself and it was like I was looking at myself in a mirror because she was wearing a skirt and all of the jewelry and I'm just like you know what you rock it you can so wear that you can wear whatever you want to to milk a goat love it have to be willing to maybe get it a little dirty I don't know so what was there something in particular that drew you to cheese making or did it just kind of like you found it and you're like, I love this. This is it kind of just happened. So we were living in Silverton, Oregon, and I was looking for jobs and I was actually trying to work at like a small local restaurant. And 
the um, it was farm to table. That's all I wanted to do was serve farm to table. And the owner was like, I'm sorry, but I don't have any jobs. I only hire family like I'm very small. Mm. But he was like, your resume is absolutely amazing. Like, I'm going to keep this. Um, and so I'm like, OK, that sounds great. And he actually gave my resume to um, the old owner and now founder of the Portland Creamery. Mm. Um, and she called me and was like, hey, we have this cheese packaging position. Um, and at the time, I was like, I don't really want to package cheese. I was like, do I get to make any I of the cheese? the cheese? Yeah, <laughs> like as an avid cheese eater, I was like, that sounds amazing. Um, and so I get to the interview. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go for it. I mm-hmm. almost right then and there was like, I'm not interested in packing cheese. But I went to the interview. <laughs> I talked with the manager at the time, um, my my great manager, James, who I'm still really good friends with. And I was like, is there any part of the job where I get to make the cheese? And he was like, that's your job. And I was like, oh, "Oh, well, why is it a cheese packaging position? And he's like, we're kind of fiddling around with titles. as Well, that's the wrong one. I know. Right. And so the the new title was production assistant. And so essentially I was like an assistant cheesemaker. And so... I got my hands very dirty working on the farm, being there right next to the animals and making the cheese, working 40 hours a week, um, doing pasteurizations and all of that by myself. And it's when I that that uh, opportunity was when I really noticed like, wow, there is so much chemistry behind this, which is I'm a huge chemistry nerd. That was my background before making cheese. Mm -hmm. And so I I fell in love with the chemistry behind cheese. That's really why I fell in love. And, you know, prior to my cheese making career, I had uh, worked at like a raw cow dairy and I was also a nursing mother. And so I was really fascinated with the idea of like, wow, milk components really provide everything necessary Mm. for a growing mammal. Mm. It just it just blew my mind. It blew my mind. And so thinking about the fact that like I could take this very simple food and whole food and turn it into like so many different things, mm-hmm. I was just like, this is this is doing it for me. Um, and I was also while I was working, you know, reading books from Gianaclise Caldwell, um, which she is a goat farmer, farmsteader down uh, in like the southern uh, Oregon area. And she wrote a whole book about like the chemistry. Part of it was the chemistry of cheese making. And that's when I was like, I need to know more. Mm. This isn't mm-hmm. enough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I decided to go back to school. Yeah, it's funny. You, I, I don't think everyone is like that, where it's like, I need to understand how it works. I think some people are satisfied with being like, it works, I know how to do the steps, and that's cool. But right. like that drive to like know how and why right? Um, I, I think is really exciting. So right. you decided, I need to know more about this, and you were looking for undergraduate programs at yeah. that time, right? Yeah, and so my manager had actually mentioned to me, I think it was just in the midst of conversation because I was moving up in the company. I was doing a lot of like legal stuff for them, writing legal documents, um, creating inventory stuff, just a lot of stuff that like requires basically a food science background. Um, And I was asking him like, you know, I feel equipped to do this job because I'm like an intellectual individual, but like I feel like I just don't have that background of like why I'm doing this and, Mm. and all of that. And he was like, well... Um, telling me about the food science degree at OSU and how he had thought about doing it at one point. And at that point, it was kind of just like in year one in one year and out the other. I, I didn't really resonate with it all that much. And then it wasn't until I looked into it that I was like, oh, wow, this is an amazing program that I need to look into more. Um, and so I'm so very glad that I did. I'm so glad that I did. 
and uh once you once you did it you um sort of your very first class you were like oh my gosh this was everything i wanted to know when i was making all those food safety (laughs) plans and things like that at my previous work yes yes so i had food law with dr michael penner he's an amazing uh chemist and so he was just teaching us about like HACCP and a food safety plan and like all of the legislation that goes into that and the and it was just you know coincidence incidental that that happened to be my first class (laughs) and I knew that I was like this is where I need to be this Mm -hmm. is the information that I need to know and since then I've had so many other classes that are relative to the legal side of things Um, but it's really opened me up to like the broad spectrum of of jobs and things available in the food science just industry I didn't realize it was a thing for the longest time (laughs) so you said it opened kind of your your view of like what is available to do in the food science industry. I might be jumping the gun a little bit here so we can, (laughs) we can go back if we need to, but what do you see yourself doing? Like what direction do you see yourself going after you've completed your master's? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a great question. I've actually thought about that a lot in this past year. Um, It's changed a lot. The ideal situation of where I'd like to see myself like end goal is I'd love to have my own farmstead creamery and production facility where I'm making kombucha and I'm making cider and I'm making sauerkraut and all of those amazing delicious things and I'm teaching people how to Mm -hmm. do it and bringing people together over food and bringing them closer to their food source so that is like the eventual end goal and maybe it'll come sooner than I think but Mm -hmm. I know that that's where I'm gonna end my life um, is doing that but I think in these next few years I'd really like to get into more of like the um, consultations t- type work mm. of helping people um, either out in facilities or out in the industry. Um, I've also considered maybe doing jobs um, where I'm just working with industry. I'm working with academics, not necessarily as a consultant, but kind of um, in like a different realm. It's kind of hard to explain. I've also thought this has been a long dream of mine for a while is to go to vet school, mm. specifying mm. in like dairy livestock and uh, exotic avian species. Um, but I would go terribly into debt, um, which I'm not into. I'm not in any debt right now. I'm one of wow. one of very few people that go to college that I have no student loan debt. Congratulations! Thank you. Yeah, I feel I feel so country. proud. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't want any, but that would be the goal: is to maybe go to vet school and then just continue working in the dairy industry, doing kind of teaching people. I want to teach people, honestly. Well, and you've already had sort of your first foray into that with your own daughter, right? You've you've taught her about how to use a milk product to make another lactose product. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I think she hears about it too much. I'd say the the two funnest things that we've done, um, aside from like always making kombucha and wine, which she loves making wine because you get to smash it with your hands, um, is we've made ice cream and she calls it ice cream science (laughs) and we've made cheese together which she thought was really fun but I always bring it up because I'll be like Ravi has mom told you how cheese is made and she's like yeah I know with milk (laughs) and I'm just like you're so right but here's five minute explanation of like why coagulation is a thing (laughs) she's like mom you're a broken record yes but then she'll say things to where I'm like where did you pick up that word and I know that she picked it up from me oh me (laughs) she was playing with this flour and water and she's like this is a sticky solution and I was like oh what is the solution and she's like I don't know (laughs) 
<laughs> so she learned that day. I love that. Starting her young. <laughs> future scientist. Maybe she'll take on the cowbucha. We'll see. <laughs> as of future. now, she wants to be a hairdresser and a rocker. And she keeps telling me, Mom, when you're done with school, can you please be a hairdresser? <laughs> um, let's let's talk about being a sort of a yeah a mom a little more in in grad school and what that's like because I would I would wager that most people most graduate students are not parents yeah yeah and especially a single parent Mm. I feel like I stick out already um and then being a single mom it just it puts you in this different category and it it kind of like depicts what your everyday looks like like I plan not just my week but I plan like my years Mm. I plan everything down to like the second that I'm doing things Mm -hmm. um it's it can be really hard to balance but you know for parents that are out there I hope that you can take this advice um is just you know I have a really tough schedule where we do a week on week off type of situation Mm. with her dad um and so on the weeks that I don't have her, I just, I grind and Mm. I work maybe 60 or more hours, Mm. not only at school, but just at home, like up late at night on my computer doing what I need to do so that when I have her, I have her. And like, I do what I can during school, but I really try to limit what I can during the evening times and on the weekend. And sometimes that's not always possible, but I try to, I really, really get, give a, a good effort. Um, and something that I've instilled recently with her is like setting aside solid time of things that her and I do. Mm. So her and I actually do mixed martial arts together, which is really <gasps> awesome. Like three days a week. It's amazing. Um, is it we, like specifically like a kid parent class it's or is not, it just for it's all this, ages? It's the same exact gym. There's like kid classes and then there's parent classes, Oh, gotcha. but we totally train together. We totally train together. And it's a very family friendly gym, which which I absolutely love. It's the fight system in Philomath, Oregon, just like a, a selfless plug there. Shout totally out. awesome, <laughs> yes. Um, so we do those types of things together. I've been working a lot with academics with her. Every other few days during the week, I'm like, this is solid time that we're going to learn. Um, and then there's solid times that we just have fun. Like she gets to choose what we do type thing. So I feel like setting aside that time is really important because something that I've learned in this past year is like nothing is really all that important. You can Mm. stop and put a pin in anything at any time. Mm. What is most important is like where you are and how you're feeling Mm. and like, you know, your family is top priority. So it's like, is school really that important? You're doing it because you want to better your family. But if you don't have a solid family, then what's it all for? Mm. So just, I feel like remembering that at the end of the day is super important and you really have to be very, um, discipline, honestly, of just like not going out super late or Mm. making sure that you have dinner plans so that you're not eating out all the time. And Mm. like as a grad student, as you guys know, (laughs) our stipend is very low, very, very low. Um, So the fact that like we can not only survive, but her and I are thriving Mm. on that is just like, I feel really accomplished and I don't have any family here. So it's like, it's just me and her and we're doing our thing. And honestly, at the end of the day, it really is all because of her. She is such an amazing kid. Like I have no issues with her. (laughs) I'd say the only issues I have with her, she has an attitude, but like I can too. So (laughs) you know where she gets it from. (laughs) I mean, I am just in awe because like you said, like graduate school is already a challenge to just manage your time and make sure you're eating and when you're in a lab position, especially because bacteria and yeast, like we talked about, they don't always grow when and where you want them to grow. Right. And right. so the schedule's constantly changing. So, you know, I'm just, I'm amazed. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's like, 
I just want people to realize like when you want something, you'll make it happen. And when something's meant to be, it'll work out. Yeah, you said this really cool thing that I liked in our pre-interview. You said you kind of did the backwards route of what most people do. Most people go to undergrad, get a job, start a family, and you started a family, got a job, went to school. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so, yeah, it's so awesome. And yeah, I I think especially for me, the part where you have no, no... family here your family's in Arizona Mm -hmm. so it's you and her and you guys are doing it and you're kicking butt in your martial arts class and I think that's so awesome (laughs) thank you um well unfortunately I think we've come slowly to the end of our interview which makes me really sad I think this is the this has been a lot of laughing yes this has been a really fun interview (laughs) hopefully we haven't blown the uh, sound levels (laughs) Uh, we do have a couple traditions at the end of the show and the first one is a question, but I'm actually going to add on another question because oh, I, I didn't actually it. get to ask this. Oh, um, what is your favorite cheese? Ah, uh, yes. Oh, my favorite cheese. My favorite cheese is uh, Comte. Are you guys familiar with Comte? Maybe a little bit. I was, but I feel like man, many people might not yes, be. Yes, please. Yes. Yeah. Educate us. Yeah. <laughs> so Comte is a hard cheese and it is uh, very nutty. Um, and earthy it's a little astringent if you eat the rind Um, but it is made in a region of France called Comte and what is special about this cheese is that the uh, farmers they send their cows out into uh, the mountains to just graze during the summertime during the entire season and so their cows are completely gone grazing in the mountains eating this beautiful summer grass and it's when they come back that first milking that they make comte with Mm -hmm. and so it's just absolutely absolutely (laughs) absolutely delicious and uh, I highly recommend trying it if you have not before. It can be kind of hard to find and it can be a little bit pricey but I am one of those individuals where I don't really look at the price tag of cheese. It's just like, do I want it? Yes, so I'm gonna eat it. Mm. Cheese, is, cheese is life. Yes. Next time you're at the at the grocery store, look for some comte. I definitely will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you are local, go to the first alternative co-op. They always have comte. Oh yes, I love Hot the co-op. Tip. Yes. <laughs> what should what should we pair it with? Oh, good oh, question. Oh, that is a good question. What, or just eat it by itself. Cowbucha. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Honestly, like what kind of evening? Are you want to just have a meal or you want to have some wine? Ooh, wine. Yeah. Let's do yeah, wine pairing. Yeah, I would probably do like a bold red. All right. Yeah. Or you could even do like a rose. That would be really good with it. Yum. Sounds right at my alley. All yeah. right. Going straight to the co-op after this. <laughs> um, well, our first, I guess, official tradition on the show, maybe we should just ask everybody, what's your favorite cheese as well? Four traditions. Yeah. They probably have one. Um, our, our, our first tradition is to ask you what your favorite thing is about your research. Yeah, I think I kind of led into this a little bit, but I developed this idea. Mm. And so I feel like that is very unique of most grad students is they don't get to pick what they, they they kind of get to pick what they are studying, but it's not that they come to an advisor or a PI with an idea. And Mm -hmm. sometimes they might. Or sometimes they might be following off on somebody else's research that they're interested in. But a lot of the time, it's not like an idea that they developed. Um, and I'll say this is the second time that I've done this. I had that happen in my <laughs> undergrad as well. So it's just it's really encouraging that like research is maybe an area that I need to look into more. <laughs> and then our second tradition is to have you give a piece of advice. It can be to anyone, your past self, undergrads. 
people who love cheese. Uh, <laughs> uh, but just tell us what the advice is and who it's for. Yeah, I would say this advice could probably be something that most resonate with. Um, and that would just be to like follow your passions. Mm -hmm. And when a door opens for you, go through it. And mm -hmm. maybe that door will eventually close, but there will be a lot of other doors that open. And when you're thinking about like the direction that you want to head with your journey or with your career, you don't have to know right away. You can go on little side tangents mm -hmm. because you're going to end up in the same place. So don't get overwhelmed by the fact that like, oh, man, I'm almost finished with my degree and I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. Just do what you love and what feels right and do your best. Like if you put good energy out there, good energy is going to come back. Um, and the other thing that I want to say is just like, take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. I really, really learned that it was a huge reminder in this past year is like, if you are not a full person, you can't do anything mm -hmm. and you can't help anyone. So not only just mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, but just, you really need to just take care of yourself and like focus on yourself first so that you can be a full person. And it's not selfish. It's not any of those things. It's just like it's so important and you will feel so much better and capable and you will be able to do what you need to do. Two really great pieces of yes. advice. And you had that third one before as well, which I really like the, you can put a pin in something mm. and it'll still be there. Yes, yeah. it will. Yeah, it, it will. won't languish and <laughs> die. Yeah. Maybe bacteria, but you know. <laughs> well, if you put them in the fridge, it should be okay for a couple months. That's what we did. <laughs> Another top tip. <laughs> and our third and final tradition is that you get to pick your outro song. So tell the people what you picked and why. And you can also just say it's a great song. I love it. Yeah, okay. Okay, so um, the song that I picked uh, is a song that reminds me, I might get a little bit teary-eyed, of my grandfather Vicente, who actually passed away before I graduated with my undergrad. Um, and it's a song that he really loved, and I, <laughs> he loved this artist. I never really knew who it was whenever I was an adult until I really heard it again. Um, and so, yeah, you guys can just play it again. It's from um, Little Joe and the Familia. And it's called Las Nubes. Yes, thank you. Yeah, you knew exactly. When we asked you in the pre-interview, you're going to have to pick an outro <laughs> song. You were like, I already know it. I don't even it's need four days it's to think of it. Well, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I had a great time. Me yes, too. Thank you both. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. And here is um, Alyssa's choice of song, Las Nubes. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends. <laughs>